Would you welcome Daniel Golan? Daniel is a church planting apprentice who is mostly serving with Christ City East Vancouver, and so he's stationed with the East Van Church. Daniel's been with us now for, I don't know, almost a year, yep. and uh, real joy to be able to have him on the team. He's going to be opening the scriptures with us today, and so I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. And, uh, and then we'll jump in. Great. Father, thank you for Daniel. Thank you for the gift that he has been to this team for, like I said, almost a year now, and uh, for what he has for us today in the scriptures. We just ask you that you bless mm. him, strengthen him as he preaches, and help us to uh, have ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You may be seated. Amen. As you're seated, let me also pray for us. Father, we come to you now asking for your help to not only understand these words, but Lord, to have these words penetrate deep into our hearts so that we might be changed by them. God, we want, we want to look more like Jesus after hearing what you have to say to us this morning. And so we pray, Lord, would you do that work by your Spirit, and it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, this morning, we are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. If you, if you have a Bible, I do invite you to turn there or phone. You can just Google it, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. And we find ourselves in the middle of a section. It's a, it's a section that began in chapter 8, and Paul is responding to a question that the church in Corinth actually asked him. They asked him, Paul, is it okay to eat meat that's been offered to an idol? And so what Paul says is, sure, it, it, those idols aren't real. They're, they're not real gods. And so it's just meat. So sure, go, go ahead and eat it. But at the same time, Paul is trying to change and challenge the perspective of this church. Paul says, what would it look like, though, to forego our right to eat meat in order to love our neighbor, in order to love our brother and sister? What, what would it look like to forego our rights, not only to love our neighbor, but to actually see the gospel go forth in this world? And so what Paul does is he begins to use himself as an example. So beginning in chapter 9, he says, look, I have rights. I have the right to be paid by you, and yet I don't make hold of that right. You don't pay me, Paul says to the church. And the reason I don't want you to pay me is because I want to make sure the gospel is crystal clear to you. I want to make sure you understand that the gospel, that the good news of Jesus, that salvation doesn't just go to the highest bidder. It's free. It's offered to all. More than that, Paul says, I want you to know that this is the greatest news in the world. And I would share this news with you, even if it meant I had to work another job to put food on the table. Now, the pushback that Paul expects is this. And let's just be honest. That's hard. 
That, that's hard. Right? Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. It's hard. To, to, to give up our rights. To forego time with family so that we might serve someone else. To, to welcome in an outsider that's maybe a little awkward, a little, little different from us in the hope that we might build a relationship with them to one day tell them about Jesus as heart. To give generously of our finances, to give sacrificially is hard. To use our free time to, to serve this church instead of spending it on recreation is hard. So why? Why do we do hard things as Christians? Maybe you're not a Christian, and a friend, a friend brought you here, and you notice this person's a little different. They seem, they seem to swim upstream from the culture, and you don't really know how to ask this without sounding rude. Why are you weird? Like, like why do you say yes to things that other people say no to? Why do you say no to certain things that other people say yes to? Why do you do all that? Here's the answer. It's the prize. It's the prize. H hands up here. Anyone uh, play, played an instrument as a child? Any, 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 any music players? <laughs> okay, so I, I, uh, I had um, the unfortunate privilege of playing piano as a child because my parents wanted to instill discipline in me and because they, uh, I think, paid a, a pretty penny for the, my lessons, they made sure I practiced the piano. The, the problem is, is my piano was right beside the window, and the window looked out into the cul-de-sac that we lived on, and my friends always wanted to play roller hockey while I was playing the piano. And so it, it felt like torture, like I wanted to called child services uh, on my parents. And then, and then one day, my parents took me to, to the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. And I think it was strategic on their point uh, because it, they were featuring a pianist. And the way that they played was amazing. It, 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 it changed my whole perspective. I didn't, I didn't know that that was possible. To, to hear the sound coming from the piano, to, to listen to the melody, to just, to just see the ways their fingers moved. It, it moved me. It inspired me. I wanted that. I wanted that joy that they had playing the piano. So next day, I, I come home. I spend like two hours playing the piano. I'm just, I'm just practicing, practicing. I did that for about three days. Then I watched a hockey game, and I said, I want to be a professional athlete Instead, but, but the point is this, look, discipline without direction is drudgery. Discipline for discipline's sake is drudgery, but discipline's sake for the prize, that's delight. That's where true delight comes. That's why we do hard things. So two, two simple points this morning. One, the prize, and two, the discipline. Firstly, the prize. To, to help his church understand, and in order to inspire them to imitate him, Paul uses an illustration from athletics. So he says this in verse 24. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Corinth, uh, the church in Corinth, would have been very familiar with the athletic scene. Corinth was the host city to what was called the Isthmian Games. I think I nailed that. Isthmian Games. The the difference between these games and our modern-day Olympics is that these games were hosted every two years. So every two years, the whole world, it felt like, would want to come and gather in Corinth to see the greatest of the greatest athletes in the known world. They would watch sporting events such as chariot races, discus, javelin, boxing, wrestling, and running. And running. Sport was part of the very fabric of life in Corinth. It felt like the city lived for sport. One commentator said this. He said that the people in Corinth needed two things from their government, bread and sport. He says the people sat around idly by day and watched sport by night. And 2,000 years later, we're still in the same place. But the point is this. When Paul is talking about running for the prize, they get it. They, They saw the glory, the prize, the fame, the recognition, the the reward that would come to the athlete that won. Now, I think you'd be wrong to push this illustration too far. Paul's not saying, look, uh, do you not know that all in the race run, are run, but only one receives the prize? Paul's not saying, like, look, there's a hundred-something of you. Better run. Only one is you getting the prize. I, I, that's not, I think, Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, look, don't you know that there is a prize at the end that they run for? Run your life to lay hold of that. Run to attain what is coming to you at the end. So what is that prize? I think there are two prizes, actually, that Paul has in mind here. Um, look, at, look at verse 25. He says this, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable They didn't give out medals at the Isthmian Games. They gave out wreaths. The winner would receive a wreath made up of pine needles, parsley, and celery. It's literally my wife's least favorite food. She gags, and so I find it hilarious that that's what they run for. I want celery in my wreath. And Paul goes, do you not see how crazy that is? Like, like the moment they start to make that wreath, it begins to wither and grow moldy and go limp. He says, look, we run after something that is imperishable. Imperishable. Now, what Paul hints at here in chapter 9, he makes explicit in chapter 15. So, so listen to this, okay? Paul says this. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all 
fall asleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and then the mortal must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the prize that Paul wants us to run after? It's eternal life. It's eternal life. It's when God exchanges this decaying body for a body that is full and fixed and one that will never die. My, My dad is going in for his fifth major surgery in three years tomorrow. And over and over again, the surgeries haven't worked. And even if this one does work, he's still going to be different. His body's still going to wither and fade and decay, and one day he still will die. Maybe some of you are familiar with the story of Joni Erickson Tata. She's a godly woman who was paralyzed at the age of 17. She she became a paraplegic, and she says this, I quote, I hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven, and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful legs, I'll stand next to my Savior. Holding his nail-pierced hands, I'll say, thank you, Jesus, and he'll know that I mean it. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to, because God will. Because Jesus rose from the dead, because he defeated the power of sin and death, when Jesus returns, Paul says, he will raise us up to be with him. He will give us imperishable bodies. He will give us eternal life. But eternal life is not just eternal time. It's not just eternal time. It's a fullness of life. It's it's as though God is recreating the world to be what it was always intended to be, which is good. There's no more evil or suffering, no more lying or deceit or thieving. There's no more people crawling on the backs of others in order to prop themselves up in this world. No more broken relationship. All is fixed and good. And the best part is that we'll be there with Jesus. We'll be there with Jesus, he says. Listen to, listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul speaks elsewhere of a crown, and he says this. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
He'll give us the crown of righteousness, he says. No longer will we be cut off from the presence of God. No longer will our sins separate us from the infinitely perfect and holy God. We will be made right in in his image. So we will be drawn into fellowship with him. We'll be with the God who made us. We'll be with the God who saved us. We'll receive eternal life in its fullest sense. But there's one other prize that Paul has in mind here. Do you remember what Paul had just finished saying just a few verses before our section? He says this in verse 22. You can follow along. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. All things to all people. Paul says, I display this multiple personality Christianity. I'm always trying to adapt myself, change myself to an environment. I'm trying to think through, how can I reach that person? Then I come over here. How can I reach that person? Why does he do all that? Why why this constant striving in his life? Paul says, because I want to win. I want to win. And what does he want to win? Look, Look what he says in verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law in order to win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law to win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. What does Paul want to win? He wants to win people. He wants to win people. The prize for Paul is for other people to obtain eternal life. He's not just trying to attain it for himself. He wants other people to walk into heaven with him. So in 1 Thessalonians, we read this. I will find it. It is in my Bible somewhere. 1 Thessalonians 2, he says this. For what is our hope or joy or crown? Same word for wreath. What what is our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul says to the church, you're my crown. You are our glory and joy. The crown is people living for Jesus. And what that means is that this prize is entirely different than so many other prizes we run after. Look, see, see if you can follow along with me for a second. Let's say you win your rec basketball league. Nothing I've ever done before, obviously. But let's say you win and you get a little trophy, okay? A little little plastic trophy. Now, it's just plastic. It doesn't doesn't really have any inherent value. You're not like, don't lose that trophy. I always want that trophy. No, no, the the reason the trophy is of value is because it it points to something else. It, It symbolizes that you won. But when we try to win people, you can't separate winning from the prize. People people are the prize. It's the the fact that they are saved that is giving me joy and delight. They're they're one of the the same. And so look, if if you're not a follower of Jesus here, and, and someone has shared Jesus with you, They've told you about who Jesus is. Let me tell you why they did that. It's because they want to win you. They want to win you. 
but it's not because they get some external recognition. It's not because they, they feel better about themselves. It's because they love you. It's because they want you to be saved. They, they want you to be saved from everlasting torment in hell. They, they know the joy of having their sins forgiven, and, and, they, and they want that of you. They, they want you to know the, the joy and satisfaction that comes from not having any guilt anymore, to not carrying our shame anymore, to being freed up from fear. That's why they share Jesus with you. They want to win you because they want you to experience the same joy they have. Christ City, what, why is it that we run? Why is it that we run? Run for eternal life, for yourself and for our friends, our loved ones, our children, our coworkers, our neighbors. Run so that we might win them, so that they might join with us in the prize. Secondly, then, the discipline. The discipline. What does it actually cost us to obtain that Prize. Tom Landry was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys for almost three decades. And he says this, he says that the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to achieve. So I want, I want to get very practical here. Look, look, at, look at verses 26 and 27. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, so here's how I want to get very practical. Um, what does it look like to run aimlessly? What does it look like to run aimlessly? I, I want to give us five things. Five ways we can run aimlessly. First one, we run aimlessly when we try to take shortcuts when we try to take shortcuts. To compete in the Ispian Games, you actually had to sign a contract saying that you were going to train for 10 months. There were actually certain scheduled training events, and if you didn't show up to those training events, you'd be disqualified from the games. Now, now that doesn't really shock us. I think we are very aware of the cost and the discipline that athletes exercise in, in order to become great at their craft. Right? So I, I heard recently that, that Tom Brady, I know, mm, thank goodness he's retiring, maybe we can win. Um, but, but Tom Brady, he would eat kale on cheat days. I don't, I don't even know what, what you eat on your normal day that's more healthy than, than kale. Um, Roger Federer also considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tennis player of all time. Uh, I knew someone who was friends with his, his coach, and his coach said, look, Roger's goal was to make it look like what he did was effortless, and then he'd work harder than everyone else. He says he would fly to Dubai, so not that bad, but then he, then he would run uh, wind sprints up the sand dunes. He'd run until he'd puke, They'd put him on an IV, they'd restore his fluids, and he'd run and do it again until he'd puke again. And over and over and over again. Why? To, to be great. 
There's no, there's no shortcut, there's no easy route to, to becoming great at something, to, to win, Paul says. And, and there's no shortcuts in Christianity either. If you go back to verse 25, when it says every athlete, the word for athlete there is the word agonizomai. It, it, we literally get the word agony from it. It's, a, it's an agony to be, to be an athlete. It takes hard work. I watched a, a show where there were um, some people exercising, and except it was they were like sipping a drink at the same time, and you could do that because you're on one of those things that just jiggle you. It's like back in the day, and supposedly that would like burn fat, or there's like the little rubber band that like goes back and forth on your belly, and you just stand there sipping your calorific drink, and and you're supposed to supposed to make you fit. I can't believe they actually thought that worked. Look, look, there's doesn't work. It doesn't work for the athlete. It takes hard work to win. It takes hard work to be a Christian. There's no shortcuts. There's no, hey, become like Jesus in 10 minutes or less. Some, some get holy quick material. It doesn't work like that, Paul says. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, we read this. I'm going to come back and back and back and back to this. But he says this. Um, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's with endurance that we run. It's not, it's not easy. There's no shortcuts here. Sometimes we're going to run, we're going to feel cramps. We're going to have to keep going, Paul says. Secondly, we run aimlessly when we run in the wrong direction. In the uh, show or book, Alice in Wonderland, Alice meets Cheshire Cat, and she asks the cat for directions. She says this, Would you please tell me which way I ought to go from here? The cat says, Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. Alice says, Well, I don't much care where. Then the cat says, it doesn't really matter which way you go. So, so long as I get somewhere, Alice adds. Oh, you're sure to do that, says the cat. If only you'll walk long enough. I don't really care where I'm going. Can you just give me direction? See, see the goal is not to strive for striving's sake. It, it's possible to work our nails down to the bone, to, to feel a sense of accomplishment and end up still being lost. Instead, we're called to fix our eyes on the finish line, to, to remember which way we're running, to remember what we're running after. See, what's most likely to happen is that you're actually going to strive after that which is perishable. Instead of running for the imperishable, we slip into running for the perishable, for things in this world that will not ultimately satisfy us, for wealth and comfort, for status, for fleeting pleasures. And it's gone, like the wind. Paul says, what are you, what are you running after? Remember the prize that we're trying to seek. Remember eternal life. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Again, Hebrews 12 says this. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. We fix our eyes on the prize. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Thirdly, we run aimlessly when we carry extra weight. When we carry extra weight. Paul actually shifts his uh, sporting analogies midway through this text. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. Then he says, I do not box as one beating the air. I I want my punches to land. I I want my effort to be worth something. I want to hit my target, Paul says. And then he says this, verse 27. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Literally, maybe your Bible has a little footnote beside it. It says this. I beat myself black and blue. I pummel my body. I give myself a black eye. See, see, this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, I want to hit my target. I I want to make sure that the effort I'm putting into life is accomplishing something at the end of it. I have a problem, Paul says, and I'm my biggest problem. I'm the greatest obstacle in my way of obtaining the prize. I want to hit my target, and so I hit me, Paul says. Paul says, look, I've been so radically changed by Jesus. He saved me, and so so I'm no longer a sinner. I'm a saint. But, Paul says, I'm still a saint who sins, and I hate my sin. It's this this weight on my life that is preventing me from following Jesus the way I want to follow Jesus, Paul says. The sin is preventing me from showing this world just how truly incredible Jesus is. And so I want to beat myself black and blue. I discipline myself so I can lay aside that sin and that weight. There's this sin in my old flesh, and I want to drop that weight. I want to run. I want to reach my prize, and the sin is just holding me back. You cannot, Christ City, take sin lightly. It is destroying you, and it is hindering your ability to obtain the prize. Fight your sin. Make war on your sin. Beat your sin black and blue. Fourthly, we run aimlessly when we don't have a training plan. Paul says in verse 27, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, it's not enough to just talk the talk. I have to do it. We, We don't just stumble onto the podium. You have to have a strategy. D.A. Carson, he, he puts it this way. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. 
We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. To achieve the prize, Paul says, you, you, you need to establish certain what people have called spiritual disciplines. There are these things that are easy, they're, they're simple, but they take discipline. It takes a plan. Like, like, when are you going to read your Bible? Like, very practically, like, actually, like, when, when are you getting up? How long are you going to do it for? How are you going to make sure you retain what you just read? When, when are you going to pray? Just, you're just going to hope you remember to pray? You, you're going to make a plan. You're going to give yourself a reminder. See, here's something, honestly, I feel like I'm struggling right now. Scripture memorization. How are you going to do it? How are you, how are you going to meditate on God's law day and night? Maybe you need a cue card in your back pocket just every, every time. You're just on by yourself. You just give it a quick read. What about family worship? When, when are you going to actually do that? Like, what Do you have a plan to spend time with your kids and your, and your spouse together with Jesus? How, how are you going to serve the church? And look, and who's going to hold you accountable to do all that? Right? Like, do you have someone who's, and you're like, hey, I want to do this. I, I want discipline. Hold me accountable. Check in on me. Make sure I'm actually doing the thing I want to do. Help me achieve the thing I actually want to achieve. There's always something, it seems like, that's, that's more urgent, that, that can get, push Jesus to the back burner. Paul says, look, you, so you need a plan. You need a strategy. Lastly, we run aimlessly when we run by the strength of our own two feet. Please, 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 please listen. Because if you miss this, the whole sermon's a bust, okay? You, you, can, you can read these verses, and it can feel absolutely crushing. You could you, you you hear that and go, I'm trying. Like, like, I am giving it all I got. I get it. Strive, endure, persevere, run. Prize, but you go, look, if I run one extra mile or I take one more beating, I might drop to the ground and I don't know if I'm getting up. Like you, you could feel like, oh my goodness, I'm never enough. I've never done enough. And so Paul says, look, yes, we run and we run with all we got, but we do not run alone. We do not run by our own two feet. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, look, we look to Jesus, verse 2, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He, he founded it, and he will make sure that it's perfected in the end. So, so, so we run after eternal life for ourselves and for others. But, but it's not on our own strength. It's not like our own merit. It's not like, like God's going, ah, did you do enough today? I, I don't know. You, you could have had one more conversation. 
You, you could have given an extra five minutes to prayer. No, no, look. There is only one person who ran the race perfectly. There is only one person who ran life in such a way that they actually deserve to attain the prize. And that's Jesus. And so we do not run this race hoping to do enough. We run this race by faith in the work Jesus has done on our behalf. We say, look, I'm trusting to Jesus. I'm trusting in what he's done. God, would you credit the work of your son on my behalf? I can't do it enough. I don't have that strength, God. And so would you give it to me as a gift? It's by grace that we're saved. Through faith. Not our own merits. There's there's nothing left to prove. There's nothing left you have to prove if you are in Christ. One of our pastors, he's put it this way. I think he put it perfectly. We run as though the race is fixed. We box as though the fight is fixed. We run and box as though we are going to win because Christ did win for us. We don't run on our own strength. We run with the strength and assurance that God supplies. So let me end with this picture. Uh, Eric Little, some of you may know him from Chariots of Fire. I know it was way too easy. I just, I couldn't resist. Um, some of you know Eric Little. He's a, he's a Scottish sprinter who ran in the 1924 Olympics. His specialty was the 100-meter race, but the 100-meter race landed on a Sunday, and because of his convictions that Sunday would be for the Lord, he chose not to run. He, he, he felt like he had let down the world. The, the very Prince of Wales came to talk to him in order to try to convince him to change his mind. But, but, but he remained steadfast. And instead, what he did is he decided to run in the 400-meter race. Now, the 400-meter race was by far not his best distance. But, as it turns out, when the gun went off, he ran the first 200 meters at a ridiculous pace. He, he was 10 feet ahead of his nearest competitor. He was only one second behind the world record pace of the 200-meter race. And they thought he could not keep going. One newspaper, they, they put it this way. They said, it would be the last 50 meters that made or break Eric Little. It'd be the last 50 meters. No one would know Eric Little for the 350 meters that he ran. It would only be the last 50 meters. And as it turns out, he won. And he won, actually, he set a new world record. Someone asked him, Eric, how did you win? How did you win at that race that you were not comfortable running in? He said this, I ran the first 200 meters as hard as I could. And then for the last 200 meters, by God's help, I ran it harder. That's my prayer this morning. If you are in the race and you felt like you've given it all in your first 200 meters, Keep running. Keep going. Keep enduring. Run with the strength that God supplies.
and maybe you're not in this race, my invitation to you is to join the race, to run for the prize that is eternal life for you and for those you love to whom you share the good news of Jesus.